Welcome to the Poseidon Theatre Company Podcast. Actors, directors, producers, playwrights, designers, composers, artists, theatre, New York City. Go. Okay, everyone. Thank you for joining us. And I am thrilled to have our special guest today. Elise Gaynor. Elise Gaynor. Elise, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background in the arts and all the above? I have kind of a unique story. I grew up in Portland, Oregon and did a lot of theater after high school. I went to college, didn't graduate. And when I came back home, I got into business. I was doing acting in local theaters in Portland. Portland has a big theater community. So I was doing that for many years. I sang with the Oregon Symphony. And then on a whim, I auditioned for the Boston Conservatory at age 38. And it was completely on a whim. I didn't know anything about the school. My voice teacher had suggested it after I went on a writing trip to Boston doing research for a book I wanted to write. He was like, hey, if you ever want to turn pro, you ought to go to the Boston Conservatory. So they were having auditions on the West Coast, and on a whim, I said, what the heck? So I auditioned, and much to my complete surprise, was accepted. That's amazing. So I gave up my career. I wasn't married with kids, so I was able to do that. I gave up my career, moved into the dorms, and uh, got a BFA in musical theater performance there. It was the most exciting, best experience of my life to date. That's amazing. And it was crazy because I was 20 years older than all my classmates, but they were really, really supportive. So I graduated in 2003 from there, and then I came to New York. I got an agent, started doing the treadmill. But it's difficult in New York to make it as an actress, especially at age I was 42 then. And it's it's challenging to break in. And basically what I learned while I was doing master classes and continuing with my craft was my teacher said, don't get on the treadmill of auditioning for shows. Make your own work. Yes. Create art and people will come and see you. And then you will, and you'll network with people. And that's the way to make it in the business. Yes. Meanwhile, I was already writing on the side on a novel that I uh, was a novel I'm working on. And then I also ended up doing a nonfiction book and I founded, as you know, a tour company Mm -hmm. because I have a passion for history. All that was going on. And then to where I'm at now is I've been back acting, but at the same time I've written a play and that's what brought me to meet with you. So that's kind of my background and my journey to New York. Oh, that's amazing. At what point did you realize that you had a interest in writing? I think it was in my 30s. Yeah. I just was fascinated with historical events. Yes. And from there, I started in my head imagining what it would be like, what those lives must, those lives must have been like. The backstories. And I think that, yeah, exactly. And that was my, my novel is based on different historical events and time. And so... And tell our listener the name of your novel. It's called The Burning Path. Nice. 
the obsession with history. That seems uh, to be an aspect that's paramount to your passion. Absolutely. I definitely think so. That's where the play came from is because Mm -hmm. of a fascination with the particular crime that happened in New York history. And when you hear a true story, you're like, you can't make this shit up. Like it's too good. You've wrote, written your first play. Congratulations. We all know that it is (laughs) harrowing work in progress, work in progress. Every theater. It is entitled the bloody deed on bond street, the bloody deed on bond street. I was lucky enough to see the first reading of it, which was fantastic. So talk to me a little bit about the challenges of creating a character based on a true story? Well, at first my concern was, am I going to get it right? How can I get it right? What year did the actual murder take place? It happened in 1857. It's not like you can YouTube this history. No, exactly. So, I mean, this is this is classic digging through books, digging through files, digging through, I'm sure, microfilm. Reading, actually, I, partner, I became partnered with a man by the name of Benjamin Feldman. He wrote the definitive book on the murder called The Butchery on Bond Street. And he and I connected and we got along and he gave me his research, which he gathered over seven years. And that he, is incredibly generous. Yeah, uh, was, it was amazing because what I, I was just starting out on the journey and I was collecting his book and other people's books. And I also was reading newspaper, which I did continue to do, mm-hmm. which I read a lot. Of, I read all the newspaper accounts. But he had... I mean, he had, I have a copy of the inquest that was written in hand. So a lot wow. of primary sources. So in developing the character of Harvey, really, you have to, I went by what you do when you're an actor and you're reading a play for the first time. You look at what did people say about him. Of course. And so that's what I would zero in on when I was reading testimony. And I would highlight and extract every time I read... Um, about different people in his life, anything that was said, anything the papers said about a person, those things I just earmarked, all those things. So you were, so in a lot of ways... That was part of my research. Gathering people's outside perception of this character. Yes, there's that. Well, because he was also, was, was he actually a figure in society? He wasn't famous until the murder. He was a prominent dentist in the neighborhood. Oh, so yes. So there you go. He, he was, was, he was an upper middle class. He was known to be wealthy. He, a lot of people knew of him and a lot of people in the neighborhood would have come and gotten his, his services. It is unbelievable the Michigas that went down in that murder. I mean, it's, you, it's, you can't make it up. And all the, and actually this is something that I'm fascinated with is that myth versus facts. So you've gotten the facts. Well, at least testimony. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about what the process was in fleshing out the story, because obviously to make something palatable to an audience and entertaining is a, a tremendous task. I spent a year doing, going through the research and well, that's, there you go. And that's, that's paramount. I think that that's pe- before I st- even started writing the play. Well, you know, they said that, um, uh, it's kind of a crazy, but you know, that apparently Ibsen would actually walk and think on his characters for a year. Wow. Like he, that was apparently part, but, but there's something to be said for meditating on the research, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, and anyway, continue. Yeah, that's, that, that was part of it. I was busy. Uh, 
and performing. So I took a year while I was performing, I was spending the time doing research. And exactly, I was percolating, letting the story percolate. So I just went through and would earmark all of the key things that happened in their lives, Harvey and Emma, and all the things that got testified about. Now, the testimony lasted for 14 days. So it was a, an intense amount. That's not even covering the trial. But it was an intense amount of information. So I would just bullet point all these different things. And then I, when it came time to write, then I decided, then it was like crossing out. I, there were some, there's some major events that happened that I've left out. Right. Well, also, too, there's the reality of knowing that you were going to make this a live, even though it's a specific stage adaptation. So it's like, okay, what can actually be physicalized? Did you have that in mind? Definitely. Definitely. There, yeah, that was the other thing that I'm still flushing out now as we go through development is where do I need to add a scene to add clarity for some of the character? Like where where is there still confusion um, where do I need to add a scene to just add clarity? Right. It's such a Greek tragedy. So much happens in it that I, I would imagine creating the narrative of the storyline is challenging because one thing actually I really like about the piece and like about the story is what we all tend to be attracted to with murder mystery and like uh, tragic like events like this. Profound chaos that surrounds the events that happened jaw-dropping new information that keeps happening is um i'm sure daunting in in its in in the task of editing it and giving everyone the the most juicy bits because that's what we're fascinated with and keeping the story narrative moving and connected and making sense yeah it's definitely been a challenging the other thing too is i had to decide early on I knew I was going to incorporate actual the actual testimony. So it's right. all verbatim testimony, all yes. the testimony parts. And I knew I was going to do that. But I'm like, I'm not going to have this play be a courtroom drama. Right, 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 there, right, right. There have been so many courtroom dramas, and I don't think I'm skilled enough to make a courtroom drama better than those that wrote them before me. So the biggest piece to decide in this particular story is how am I going to tell this story? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Am the, I going to do it yeah. Agatha Christie? Am I going to make it an Agatha Christie mystery? Again, I'm not Agatha Christie. Yeah, what's the frame? So I'm not going to do it as a straight-up murder mystery, although that is a driving question to the play. But the Well, it play, also touches on – uh, sorry to cut yeah. you off, but like it also – what I like is that it touches on like all classic – tales uh it touches on themes that are we have not really progressed with you know touches on misogyny and and sexual misconduct and and the confines of puritanical society (laughs) which was something i wanted to elevate so i appreciate that you that you saw that yeah and i i mean that but that's the thing like when we did antigone the thing that so many people came away with is that they're like this could happen right now and i'm like yep 2500 years later haven't evolved uh i mean what what is human condition um so that kind of actually transitions talk to me about um your fascination with uh 
the genre of like murder mystery and ghosts and a, a certainly at least from my perception uh the paranormal aspect of all that even if it's uh, well the paranormal aspect of that and, and and what that means to you well one thing i do have to tell you i'm going to give a little plug here i did a thing called actors where are you going it's really for any artist and a guy by the name of john dapolito does it here in new york city and basically what it is it's based on the idea that all of us have what's called an unconscious meditation. Mm-hmm. And I won't get into, we don't have time in this podcast to explain the, what it comes, what, what, what creates it and how it's, it's complicated. I but love that. Long story short, he, I had a session with him, a very lengthy session where we got to the heart of what my unconscious meditation is. All right. And mine is death and mayhem. Yep. And by knowing that information, by bringing what's in my unconscious, making it conscious, making me consciously aware, it has really helped me to build my brand. So if you look at my brand, it is all about death and the mayhem associated with death. So I have a walking tour business, Ghosts, Murders, and Mayhem. Mm-hmm. And then I have my play and my novel both deal with death and what happens after death. Yes. And so that's where... I've always been unconsciously attracted and read and seen movies um, ever since I was a very little girl. Yes. But what I tell my tour, when people come on our tours, what we tell them is ghost stories. The reason I love ghost stories is mm-hmm. they point to the idea that life continues. Well, it, it's that it's that Sondheim lyric, uh, we disappoint, we disappear, we die, but we don't. The ramifications of people's actions extend way past the time that they leave this earth. I 100% identify with, with what you're saying because I definitively know my unconscious meditation. I became aware of it. Something about your 30s, right? Your 30s kick in and you're like, oh, God. Um, like mine is definitely grief and family turmoil. They just make perfect sense. makes perfect sense to me. Um, hence Hedda. Hence Hedda. Hence Antigone. <laughs> hence the cooping theory, which is a complete meditation on grief and death um, and family bullshit, you know. But um, it, I love that you said that. I mean, I, I've never uh, vocalized that before, but it's that's a great thing, I think, for artists to go into is really figuring out, like, what is your, like, raison d'etre? Mm-hmm. And also, you know, it seems like, not seems you've clearly done the thing being confident that you're like, this is my trip. This is what I, this, and also like Anne Bogart says it, finding what delights you and like having the audacity to think that it will delight other people, but then simultaneously figuring out a way to have no ego to tell a story. You know, I I think there's something that's really Meryl Streep says it. She says, well, I'm basically the voice of dead people, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that that's very, that's very profound. Because there's something about telling the stories of a history that came before you that I think really helps make, helps remove your ego because it's bigger than you. Mm-hmm. It's about, it's about another, other souls, not even fictional souls, other souls. Um, yeah. So that, that's an incredible insight you gave us. I highly recommend anybody looking into it and finding out what it is that is their passion behind their passion. It helps me in choosing audition material. I'm not going to go in and sing some, you know, uh, sun will come out tomorrow song. I would do something that has 
that's on my niche. And then it's, it's really interesting, but people in the room, they don't know what should, they don't know you have this unconscious meditation, but they unconsciously pick it up. Oh, 100%. You know, it's funny, like an example of that for someone that's very commercially known, uh, Christine Eppersall, right? Mm-hmm. So Christine Eppersall has this thing that happens to her. We've all seen it where there's so much life, like she can be delightful, but when she goes to that place, like in Great Gardens or even like in War Paint, and a lot of her work that we've seen, she goes to this place that is so dark and self-reflective and it reads to a house. Whatever the hell that is, that she, that's her unconscious meditation, we're drawn to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that beyond, obviously, the just sheer gorgeousness of her voice, it's really what I think has made her a star. Just like whatever that power, let's go like with the example who is opposite of her in war paint of Patty, Patty. whatever Patty's unconscious meditation is, is clearly some siren of a, of a, of a drive. But there's a but dark twin. There's a dark twin. And we're drawn to it. For example, she was in the television show Penny Dreadful. Oh yes. Yes. Played yes. Really, yes. Really interesting characters in that. Sweeney Todd, she was amazing. She played that. She played Levitt. that crazy mom in uh, American Horror Story too, like the puritanical Christian mom. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and then she's you know got her big break with Les Mis, so she has some dark. There's some dark. Juana Vita. Yeah. Hot mess. That character. Character is a mess. It's interesting to see who these people voicing that the unconscious meditation of like what we're drawn to, and how we don't even realize that that is the thing that makes us want to return and see something again. Exactly, and sometimes I think people might, whether they're writing something mm-hmm. or where they can get in trouble if they're trying to write something or if they're an actor and they're writing a story that's not on their niche, or it's not that they can't do it. And same with actors. It's not that you can't play something that's not on your niche, but if you're not having success, you might think, oh, I'm not any good. And it's not about that. It's just when you are somebody else who that thing is on their niche. So they're going to get cast because they're the ones who's bringing that in as their niche. And and so people will judge themselves bad. And when really it's just, they haven't, they're not on their niche. Does that make sense? 100%. I was actually just talking to my boyfriend about this, actually. If you hear a lot of singers, which in New York we do, right? I'm always fascinated when I hear a singer fight the songs that fit in their voice. It doesn't, has nothing to do with range. Well, I mean, on some level, but as a singer, not fighting the song that you're like, oh, oh, that just sits in my voice. It might not even be your favorite song, but like it just sits in your instrument. And I think that that's something you can quantify because music is, it, there's, you're either on pitch or you're not, right? And I think that that's something that's hard to quantify with sort of the esoteric nature of acting. Because <laughs> you're like, how do you really, you know, it's the thing where no one really knows how to talk about it, but mm-hmm. we just know that like when you're creating and acting or just creation in general, like the muses, whatever it is, you know that it's happening. You don't really question it. And the antenna's on. And it, like, comes through. And you're kind of, I'm, like, grateful that it's happening. I'm I'm glad that, I don't know what it is, but it's happening. I'm just going to run with that trust. I'm fascinated by this unconscious meditation and not fighting your damn brand. We call it a brand now. Mm -hmm. I don't think they did I feel like I didn't hear that word until like the last 10 years. I think you're right. But I think that has to do with social media. 
we now control our own destiny. <laughs> We're our own page six. You get to public relations, your life. With that being said, let, let's talk about the choice in you really going in and fully committing to creating a company, both with your tours and to create your own work. And you went charging forward to create opportunities for yourself. It wasn't just that. That was the the seed, I guess, that got planted by right. my teacher. Yeah. The other thing I left out that I've been doing the last number of years is studying Moises Kaufman's ah. technique of moment work. And of moment work? It's called moment work. And that's it's his way to develop theater. And Yeah, unpack that. Basically, theater, the typical way theater is done is a play gets written, there's text. And then a, then what happens is a director gets assigned to the text, and then the director will hire design people, lighting people, costumers. They will hire actors. And then a show gets born. That is the typical way theater has been done for centuries. Yes. So Moises said he... When he was doing his master's, he said, I want to break that model. Yes. So basically in a nutshell, the way Moises text is just, instead of it being like a pyramid type of situation where you start with the script and build up. Yes. His approach is you take all the elements of theater and think of them as columns. And each column is of equal importance. So... The way you tell a narrative story, you may use text or you may use lighting or you may use sound. So there's different ways to tell a story and it doesn't have to be with the words. So in studying his technique with him for a couple of years, that also was like, I knew I was going to create something. And then it was just a coming together of, okay, um, Merchant's House a place that I volunteer with, they had the idea. They said, you know, if somebody wrote a story about the Bond murder, we think it would be really a hit. And I said, say no more, I'm going to do it. Because I knew the story. And I had Great. just, when that happened, when, that's, when she said that, when the Merchant's House executive director said that, it was just after I'd completed a workshop uh, Moises's moment work technique. Don't you love like when serendipity kicks in? Yeah, yeah <laughs> the you, best. exactly. Yeah, so the seeds, you know, they've been planted by m- numerous people, and then it was like a coming together. But actually, even before I wrote the play, I'd also been studying with like I think the best Shakespeare teacher on the planet. Oh. His name is Rob Clare, and so I've been studying with him, and I got so passionate about Shakespeare. Actually, the first thing I did was decide to uh, produce a web series using uh, Shakespeare themes, themes of Shakespeare, and then using Shakespearean text. Yeah. And so when I decided I wanted to make this web series, then I, that's when I said, okay, I got to have an LLC. And the reason I needed the LLC is because I wanted the web series to be SAG-AFTRA, 
one of the reasons is I'm SAG. Mm -hmm. So I needed the web series to be SAG. And then it would give the opportunity for the actors that participated to be able to join SAG. That's great. So that's why I needed to get legit in terms of the producing side and why I formed a company is that then when I went to SAG, I needed to be a legitimate company to get the union authorization. Yes. So that's the first project I did. And then the play came and the play came after yeah i wrote the play after so it's under the umbrella and so now it's under the umbrella well, that's actually a really i'm glad you mentioned this for anyone out there getting into the business of show within your llc you have to kind of look at it as an umbrella because on occasion I've, I've seen a couple of people who like start four and i'm like that's a lot once you have the umbrella things can all fall underneath we're competing in new york i mean the truth of the matter is i feel like if people are showing up to your work you're instantly already having a a level of success because the choices here are infinite and the fact that people will come to your tours or come to like one of our new shows or show up to a a, a, a reading of something you're creating that is a level of success because people don't have to get on the subway don't have to get in a taxi cab don't have to like show up somewhere after work and the fact that they do is fucking incredible I think it all the time. I'm like, these aren't my friends. These are patrons. When people start to get into your work, it's amazing. It's humbling. It's humbling. It's very, very humbling. Actually, if there's something that checks your ego is when just patrons show up. Exactly. It's, yeah... There's when a responsibility. I did, I did the tours because out of a passion. Of it's course, yeah, of not course. Not to make a ton of money, but just because I love New York history and I'm passionate about it and I thought it would be fun. Yep. But when I was writing them, I had no idea if people would find it interesting. Like what I find interesting, will other people find it interesting? Mm-hmm. So I'm still very humble. I have tour guides now that, uh, lead my tour, so I don't have that much contact with audience. But when I, I did a tour in, during the Halloween season, and I'm so humbled when strangers say, "Oh my gosh, this was so interesting! I that was fascinating! I had such a good time!" and it's very humbling. Do you tend to hire people who are performers so that there's a, a liveliness to the way that they kind of present? You the... definitely want to have a storyteller. Yes, yeah, story. Yeah, I because. I'm relying on their ethics. I have people that I know. Of course. I have people that apply to be tour guides, and I'm sure they'd be great, but I'm relying on that business, on on my people's integrity. So the people I have... Well, there's a responsibility of showing up to a certain place, being on time. There's a lot of logistics. A lot 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 that you really have to... um, Goes into, in that particular case, there's a lot of commitments, and so... But yes, both my tour guides are actresses, former actresses, and so they do know how to tell a story, and that is key. Oh, you yeah. have to be able to tell it. Because you're definitively you're engaging an stories. audience. You're, you're telling stories is what you are. So it's not just spewing out facts. I have a script. They can embellish upon it, but they have to stick to the script. I, I do tons of research on my yes. tours, in-depth research, and so the tour guides have to hit those those facts, but yes, they have to be a storyteller. Let's talk a little bit about figuring out what the hell it means to produce. First of all, is that you are a ringleader. You're controlling all the logistics. Yes. The minutiae. The minutiae that no one wants to deal with. That, exactly. That too. So for the, and the producing for the web series was, was a little bit different. Mm-hmm. 
because it was a union sanctioned, I had to hire a payroll company. I had to have insurance for the shoot. I had to make sure that my location where we were shooting was uh, that there weren't any certificates or permits that I needed. Yes. So that whole thing that people don't get, if you put down a tripod, you will be arrested. Like it is, it yes, is a serious thing. Most city, most parks in the city, you have to have a permit. Most any public places, most public places, you have to have a, a permit. And I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to shoot my web series at Greenwood Cemetery? It's in Brooklyn. It's oh. Stunningly it's beautiful. my favorite. Yeah. And I even, so this is what you learn when you're a producer. So I went out there with my boyfriend and we scouted all these shot locations. Oh, yeah. Because we're going to have 10. It's like a national park. It's yeah, unbelievable. So I, I, I spent all this time in this one afternoon coming up with shot locations. But I was a new producer and completely ignorant. And then when I shot off an email to Greenwood after that to say, how much would it, what, you know, is there a fee to shoot? It turns out it's like $10,000 a day. Oh, yeah. So that was like a complete waste of time. There's no way I was going to try and raise $10,000 to shoot at Greenwood. Oh, well, I had a similar situation when I started searching for spaces for my first show. I was like, excuse me, how much is this for a day? Yeah, it's the... the well, so let's talk about that. The yeah. initial shock of the truth of a price tag. Yeah, the price... The, that's what's particularly, I think, in New York. So you have to be imaginative. Yes. And but don't you feel that the, the being imaginative breeds more creativity? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this was the whole thing. The only reason I took on a play, mm-hmm. I never, my product, my LLC is Paranormal History Productions. Yes. And more thinking of web series, short feature films, yes. short film. And then the play thing came after the fact and plays are difficult because equity is very, very expensive, extremely expensive. And then just what you said in New York city, this is a theater town. I did ticket research. That's something you should do if you're putting up a show. 100%. I did a, a spreadsheet of all the shows that were currently playing and I put down, I logged in all the pricing that they're charging. Yeah. And off Broadway, there was like 80 shows. And I'm like, wow, how am I going to get audience? So the only reason I went forward producing-wise with this play is because for my particular piece, I decided to uh, put it in a site-specific place. Yes. And it has different... A beautiful site-specific place, I might add. Yes. So, and that was the whole key. If I hadn't have found that space, what? this play, I would not have produced this play. 100%. The cooping theory, I had a relationship with the space. Which your space was amazing, I, too. I mean, yeah, John, John McCormick, who owns St. Maisie's Bar and Supper Club, and then underneath is St. Charles Cellar, which is a genuine... 100-year-old speakeasy. I mean, you can't make it up. His brilliant, his whole aesthetic is clearly a transformative environment. And he had said to me when I started my relationship working in that space years ago that he's like, this space is theater. It is theater. I don't think you should be afraid if you're you're working on something to let the space inform the piece. Things don't always look the way you think they're going to look, but then sometimes it actually ends up even better. Like the space at least is, is staging the bloody deed in, is gorgeous. When that space showed up, you were like, perfect. That's it. And there's something to be said about a unique experience for an audience. 
Exactly. Well, that's why I decided as a producer, and I'm not saying that other people, I encourage them to go out and, and put up their plays. Yes. Do it. Just for me personally, I felt I wanted to find what about my play would be unique and yep. the site the where it takes place is one of the key things that makes it unique so that was an important thing so when you're producing you have to look and you've got to look at a lot of different things but the number one thing is budget the budget. number one thing you, that a producer is responsible for is the budget the budget and that informs everything and i think this is something that i think is paramount to anyone starting off producing is you have to figure out, actually, what is my floor? You have to make a worst-case scenario and best-case scenario and middle-case scenario. I don't know if you yes, did that. Yes, no, I did that. I, I did yeah, union you, and non-union. Well, and then within that, tell me tell me, this is something I've never actually unpacked this on mic. For example, like with the cooping theory, I, had to, I made a best-case scenario perfectly doing perfectly fine scenario oh and then of ticket sales sales. oh yes i did yes best case scenario right i really believe in this visualizing success i think tends to garner some aspect of success like obviously we're competing but if you visualize it and you put it out there in the universe if you're sitting there dreading no one's going to come they they're not going to come i really believe that like but if for some reason you put that morse code out there they'll they're coming they're coming they I can say this safely, they fucking show up. They really do. There would be weeks where I would actually doubt, almost like not believing in in Tinkerbell, and I would stop clapping in my own mind. We would be quiet. I really think as a producer, it's something no one talks about, is putting that visualization that they're going to come. Obviously, sometimes theater never goes out to fail, but sometimes the show just doesn't work. What are you going to do? I think as far as like thinking about the audience, you have to be positive. But that being said, you still have to come up with best case scenario, come out with, we're doing fine. And then come out with, Oh shit, frankly, like, so on the worst week, where are we at? And also I think if this is something you figured out with a discount, what is the ticket price that could still sustain the overhead of the show weekly. That's what I learned. Yes, me too. And part of it is because I'm doing site specific, I have a limited number of seats. So that's what's the driving... The boutique aspect of it is key. It, that's the thing. And it's driving the ticket price. Of course. Because if I had more seats, then I could have a lower price. Well, yeah, because it's like... I don't, I, it's higher. And it's just uh, people like, oh, I don't want to get into the whole money thing of the arts. I just want to think about the art. Well... It doesn't the, exist. It doesn't exist. Nope. In reality, you have to um, marry the two. Yes. It is business the, versus art is, you, they're not even business versus art. It is a marriage. It's a marriage. Exactly. And I have to tell you, so originally the play idea was to put it up at the merchant's house. They do a very successful play. Is every, that in the same row? It's just around the corner. It's just around the block. Okay. From, from where Colonnade wrote, where my play is going. And that's why Pi, the head of the Merchant's House, suggested it, was because they have a play company coming in every Christmas. They do a Christmas carol, and it sells out before it even opens. That's great. Their whole season sells out. It's been very, very successful. And that's why she even suggested the idea. So when I wrote the play, I wrote it in mind to go in the parlors at the Merchant's House. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, and I actually did my first reading for the Merchant's House last spring. Mm-hmm. 
And in consulting with Ken Davenport, a Broadway producer, on this journey, I've since decided that that wasn't going to be a fit for the museum or for me. So that is a situation where the art, see, when I wrote the play, it ended up being, uh, at first, a nine-person play. Mm-hmm. Their parlor could not sustain nine actors. Mm-hmm. Their Christmas Carol is a one-man show. My play Heard. could not be a one- or two-actor play. Certainly not. So in this case, the play... As it is, they're already like tripling up. Pardon? They're already like tripled up on characters. Yes, yeah. yes. And so... So my play was going to be a bigger cast. The art dictated that. Mm -hmm. However, when I put on the producer hat and started looking at venue and started doing the budget, I was like, I can't afford nine actors. Yeah. Then the producing dictated the play, and I went and spoke to the playwright. They're all in the same body, so it was easy. I said, you got to go back and look at this and see if there are characters you can drop, see if you can tell the same story, with fewer actors. 100%. So and that's where it's a marriage. 100%. And, you know, the thing with that is that it, I don't think any actor ever minds having more to do. Like, you're never going to get an actor being like, I have too many lines. I'm playing three characters. Like, no one no one minds Now, there that. are actors that are intimidated by that. I would be intimidated if I were playing um, four characters. But if you have the, the right talented actor who can do that, that just shows... It just shows the world. It's a great showcase for them too. Absolutely, it is, shows like, we, their their skill because and, that's not easy to bring to life. No, three no. or four different we characters. Did, we did Sophocles. We did not fucking Antigone. Okay, and everyone but the chorus, which was only four of them, Creon and Antigone. Everyone else was doubled up. Wow. The messenger was Tiresias. As many was Eurydice. It was that situation. Haman became the messenger. Like, wow. and they were completely different. There's something I like about that too, because there's an unapologetic nature to the way you're presenting theater. Actually, the kind of theater that delights me is theater that doesn't apologize for being theater. Exactly. I'm like, yeah, we're putting on a we're telling you a story. Like this isn't like a movie. Like there's no like I can't uh, no, I'm okay, I'll take that back. I have a really hard time focusing on a sofa play. Like it's hard on me. I'm just like, I appreciate it. I like the writing. I think it's incredibly skilled and I, and I think it's a valid form, but that shit is rough as far as I'm concerned for me. Like I'm kind of like, I get, I get, uh, antsy. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, this is so realistic. Like it's so, I call it fluorescent lighting theater. Mm. I'm like, Oh man. We're just not even moving, are we? There's no, like, we're sitting and talking, which is great. You know what I'm saying? But it, it, there's, it's a style of theater. I think it's valid, but like, I certainly know that it doesn't, it's not the first thing I'm going to run to. And frankly, I think in this ADD, um, hyper stimulated culture, culture, people want sound, people want visuals, people want something a little more immediate. And also, I think theater is on a boom again. Because we're so disconnected, people are craving the connection of breathing the same air as the performer. Let's go back to the basics. And that's the beauty of theater is that we get to harken back to that inherent thing that we all want. We want to hear a story. Exactly. And we kind of want to hear it campfire style on some level, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's something you're very much doing with this. I mean, it's incredibly intimate. 
we had a similar aesthetic that way where the actors are a foot from your face, if not an inch. And, you know, audiences suspend disbelief pretty quick, mm-hmm. you know, because I think we're, we crave it. We're craving that human, the humanity of theater, mm-hmm. you know, I would uh, agree. Um, so, um, wh- so wh- wh- why don't you talk to me a little bit about, um, what's next, uh, for, uh, bloody deed. I hope you don't mind me. I'm like literally giving it already like a hyphen uh, for the bloody for the for the bloody deed on Bond Street. We, we got to we have to push the brand. So talk to me a little bit about where you're um, where the process. Yeah, like where you're at in the process. So last week on November fifteenth, we did an invited reading for mm-hmm. people that some are just friends of a lot of them are friends of mine yeah. or possible people who might be associated with the production, friends of my executive producer. And what I did is a survey monkey. I really applaud you wanting specific feedback and asking like very, very detailed questions. I mean, after all, if the audience doesn't understand, like, where are we? Exactly. So here was the thing, too, that's interesting about a reading and about developing your own work. Like, after it's so funny. After the play, after the reading, mm-hmm. the next day, first of all, I kind of blacked out and I could not remember what people were saying to me in the room in the, that night. Well, no, because first of all, just the mechanics of having that go up, you're you're so spent, and then and then you were in it, so I can't even um, I can't even imagine. And then I and I was concerned about packing up all of the gear and yes. everything and and getting the getting out of the venue. So I should say anyone who's doing a reading, she had C's candies, which are the best and chocolates mine. in the world. <laughs> it was yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I you, grew up on that. I'm glad you liked <laughs> that. Um, anyway, so first of all, I'll just say what was really that I was I'm still working through is the very next day I couldn't remember. All I could remember was that a couple of people said, Oh, it's getting better. And then two bosses of mine, one said, I didn't understand the beginning, and then another one said she was bored in the middle. So of course that's what was in my head. I was like, Oh my God, is this a bad play? Should mm-hmm. I even go forward? Should I even put it up? But I don't think that's true. I think I've got the potential of a really good piece. And yes, one hundred percent. So this is the the one thing you, you know, anyone who's an artist creating their own work, you have to fight the demons, the demons that tell you um, stop, it sucks, don't go forward. So you have to deal with that. So I'm in that process right now. But I did the survey so that I could get specific feedback because yeah. people, if people had just come up to me and said, "Oh my God, it's great," which Again, I don't remember that happening, but if they had, again, I wouldn't have known how to make the work better. And actually, I think that, you know, the thing that's like uh, Cooping, because Antigone didn't run long, you know, first show, only had the budget for a long weekend. We didn't run long enough to be reviewed. Cooping ran long enough to be reviewed, and it was a little harrowing, but then you realize if you don't want that aspect of theater, don't do it. It's all part of it. And... And uh, and ultimately being um, being able to see the forest for the trees and not being upset if something is polarizing because I think that's even better. Mm. I'd rather have people be like, I really wasn't. I this was rough, and then other people, it, actually not even rough. 
the polarization of people's opinions actually means I think you've actually accomplished something because people are, have strong reactions. Mm -hmm. There's nothing worse than hearing feedback. Oh, it was fine. Mm -hmm. That's the yes. fucking worst. Yeah, that's true. You know, there's something, and I'm not saying that you had that, but like, you know, it's part of the process. I think no one wants to talk about, you that, know, and, and I think it was very brave and very beyond that, just smart to be like, what, how did this communicate to the audience? Because that's it. And so that's why my, I did the survey. It was actually Ken Davenport recommended it. He said three questions. I did six and to get at like where, you know, what characters could you not understand? And then you asked about plot where, line. You're like, where was the plot line clear? Was, yeah. What, where were things what intrigued that was you? confusing? Yeah. Anything you think doesn't need to be there. So what'll happen is, so now where the process is, I sent those out and I will, I haven't looked at them yet, but I'm going to review them all. And then I'm going to meet with, I did hire a dramaturg. So he's not a friend. He's a professional. This is what he does for a living. He's been working with me on the script through various rewrites. He was there that night. So we're going to take all the surveys and we're going to meet next week and we're going to go deep in where, what do I need to switch? And I've also did that same process with my director. So she's already made her suggestion. So I'm going to take that and the surveys with my dramaturg. And then we will come up with what is what is really floating to the surface of all these opinions, which are the ones that seem to be chiming. And those will be the areas that I will look at when I go in for my next rewrite. And then what I'm going to do is I have another dramaturg, again, not a friend, a professional, that after I do this next major rewrite, then I'm going to send it to a completely new guy who wasn't at the reading, who's... who's first time read and have him do a major analysis and then I will do another rewrite and I'm not sure yet if I will do another reading or if I will just go into rehearsal for a workshop production but the workshop production is slated to begin for four weeks two shows a week beginning March 2nd where can we follow your journey and then uh, have people come and see this first workshop production? I would love to have people come to the workshop because that's the feedback. That'll be the next deep feedback we'll get. And then if we need to tweak the show in any way before we open it officially further down the road, then that's why the workshop. But I'm hoping that the workshop will really be a polished production. We're oh, yeah. calling it a workshop. Well, no, it's previews. That aspect of theater, I think the people who come and know that, I actually think they're chasing it. They don't want to see you mess up, but they're kind of excited to see something start. It's a cool thing to watch. Yeah, um, to see the progression. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. 100%. So where can we find you? So the website is www.com www.bloodydeedonbond.com bloodydeedonbond.com and Elise where can we find you and, and follow you in your social media journey or Twitter I'm at Elise Gaynor G-A-I-N-E-R and I also have a website elisegaynor.com that'll lead you to the tours that'll lead you to Paranormal History Productions if you want to find out about the web series we did it was in response to the election that was going on. So I mm -hmm. took what I, I just had to add a plug for it. Please. What I did with that is the theme I wanted to explore in Shakespeare was power. Yes. And it ended up being the progression of power, kind of like what is the cycle of power? 
And so it's a five-part web series that explores the nature of power, beginning with the rise to power, then ruling power, then the rebellion to power, the war that erupts when when power is in war, and then the fall of power. Yes. And so what I, I took speeches from Shakespeare that had to deal with each of those things, and then I also brought in historic speeches. So Lincoln, uh, Patton, uh, different historic speeches. Yeah. Uh, Malcolm X. Yes. And so I brought those speeches in as well. So Oh, and where can what where So that is at Paranormal History. Uh, is the channel on YouTube. Yes, and it's on So yeah. it's youtube.com uh, the, backslash paranormal history. Uh, well you can find it, I think, Paranormal History Productions or also the web series. I think you can just Google the Hollow Crown. The Hollow Crown. That's fantastic. Are you on the Instagram if people want to chase your life? Again, Elise Gaynor. Elise Gaynor. Who doesn't love an uh, IG? But a little, a little social stalking <laughs> is never, never, never wasted time as far as I'm concerned. But I am, as a producer, I'm needing to hire a. I've got. I've hired a social media person, and she's going to be putting a bloody deed on Bond on Instagram and Twitter and all that as well. But oh, perfect. Our website's kind of fun. We. Go in, we have one page devoted to the history of what was going on in 1857 mm-hmm. and also the scene of the crime. And so you can get a little more background about the story, not just and, about the play. And I can attest from just what I gathered, it is an unbelievable tale of tragedy, chaos. Murder and mayhem. Murder and mayhem. My God. I with was a like. With a paranormal twist. With a paranormal twist. Elise, what a pleasure. I'm so. Happy that you got to come swing through. It's oh, like I'm and, honored. Oh no, please. I mean, I'm honored. I you know, it's this is something that I think is important is that the whole point of this podcast, and I'm so glad it's happening, is that I think that as a community, we all build each other up together. I have a correction. Yes. My own web series. Yes. I said it wrong. It's Odyssey of the Hollow Crown. Uh, that's a great title. Odyssey <laughs> of the Hollow Crown. I barely know my middle name most days, so please, you're one hundred percent fine. <laughs> Elise, it was a Aaron, complete pleasure. You. Oh, you're so welcome. And uh, everyone, check out bloodydeedonbond.com. And also, if you have any questions, and you can also get in touch with me at info at Thank you so much for listening today, guys. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Poseidon Theater Company podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, and rate us. Connect with PTC on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can visit us at PoseidonTheaterCompany.com. That's theater with an R-E. Join in the conversation with any ideas or questions you may have at info at PoseidonTheaterCompany.com. From all of us at PTC, we thank you for your interest and passion in the arts. Let's continue communicating and creating.